you're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So this morning, I want to begin by the idea of have you ever had a text or an email kind of get you in hot water? Or maybe cause an issue in a relationship. And we all know that. You already giggled. You already know what that is like. And we've all experienced it because it boils down to the issue. When you send a written communication that 92% of communication is nonverbal and 40% is emotion. So when you take something that is written down, it's hard to tell tone and it's hard to tell emotion. In fact, it could be something like this. Your wife or maybe your husband needs to go shopping. Need to go to Kohl's, or in his case, I need to go to an academy. I just need to run in and get something real quick. And so you go in, and you're being supportive, and you run out of places to sit down. So you go, and I will go out, and I'll wait in the car patiently, as we all do. So you send the text that might say something like this, and this is how you mean it. Hey, it's, it's, it's time to go. But how she hears it is, it's time to go! Because you can't tell tone. Or someone sends you a text and maybe they're asking for your help and you write back, not right now. And it could be, not right now. Or you know, at the same time, it could be, not right now! Because you can't tell tone. In fact, it just happened to me on Friday. I was texting with a friend and I was trying to be funny. I know I often fell at that. It was a little bit of sarcasm. And all of a sudden, he doesn't respond. And I thought, oh, no. So I've already upset him, so I had to call back. And you know how that is. It just doesn't work out the way you mean it because you can't tell tone, you can't tell emotion. But you know what happens? The same thing can happen with Scripture. Because here we have the written, inspired Word of God, but it can also, if it is not in the right tone, in the right emotion, it can be misunderstood. In fact, today's passage is a great example of this. Because if you read this in the wrong tone, in the wrong emotion, you know what you're going to hear, and it is going to cause some extreme damage. Because it can go like this. You know what? You just need to stop sinning. If you sin, it shows you don't even know God. And if you say you know God and you don't do what He says, then you're a liar. And if we're not careful, that is exactly the tone or the emotion that can come out of this. And what I want us to see today is obedience to God's commands. That is not the right tone. That is not the right emotion. God's commands, they're not to be oppressive burdens. The scripture calls it this yoke around our necks. And so I don't believe that's at all what John intends here. So let's see this today in the right tone, in the right emotion. Because look at verse 1. In the first three words, you see the tone coming out. John says, my little children. John sees these people that he's writing to in these churches as his children. He's almost like a father to him. He loves them. He cares about them. He wants the best for them. And John is not writing this as some upset and frustrated parent that's just constantly disappointed in his children. He loves them. He wants to see them 
experience life and experience it abundantly that only comes through knowing and following Jesus Christ. So he says, my dear little children. And then he says why he's writing. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And this is John's hope for these little children, his, the people that he loves, that they may not sin. And I told you we'd be lo- walking through a lot of doctrine. And so here is an overview of like the doctrine of sin from John. Well, the first thing John is not saying, he, he's not saying when thinking about sin that he doesn't sin anymore and they just need to be more like him. That's not what John is saying. Second of all, John is not even saying, you know, the sinless life is possible if you would just try harder. That's not what he's saying. So what does John mean? What is he saying? Well, I think he has several things in mind here. For one, the believer, sin is now a choice. Because we know that before faith in Christ, that is all that a person can do. In fact, Romans 14.23 tells us that whatever is done apart from faith is sin. Therefore, before you're a believer, that is all you can do because nothing you do comes from faith. It might look like a great deed or an act, but it's not from faith. Therefore, it's sin. But once we are saved and the Holy Spirit lives within us, sin becomes a choice. But the second thing is, what does he mean by sin? Because notice, John doesn't list for us any particular sins. He leaves it very broad. And this is where context and even reading the whole book is helpful. Because you saw from the first two weeks, he's writing in the backdrop of these people, false teachers, that we know as Gnosticism. And one of the things that this does, and we'll see it next week in chapter or verse 19, this group of false teachers comes in. They abandon the gospel, and then they're leaving the church. So John is thinking about the people that are there, and he's pleading with them, those that are still there not to sin, don't abandon the gospel that was proclaimed to you. If they do, they're going to fail to fulfill Jesus' teaching of love God and love others. And that's exactly what we see in Gnosticism. It leads to that. We saw that over the last couple of weeks, and we will continue to see this. But third is, why does John want them, not want them to sin by abandoning the gospel and not following Jesus' commands? Why would he not want them to do that? One thing is because John knows the devastation that sin brings. And I believe this is something we need to be reminded of more and more. That sin isn't something to take lightly. It isn't something to dismiss. We saw last week it isn't something to rename and to go unconfessed. That sin does all kinds of things. We saw it disrupts fellowship with God and others. We saw that in the last two weeks. But you know what it also does? Sin will destroy reputations. It will destroy families. It will destroy marriages. It will destroy friendship. And it will cause pain wherever it is allowed to go unconfessed. So John is thinking about these people that are gathering in these homes all around Ephesus. And he wants them to know sin is not something to take lightly and dismiss or to leave unchecked. And he hears this false teaching that they're hearing and people abandoning the gospel and leaving the church. And John is heartbroken. 
because he knows the effects of sin. He doesn't want them to lead down a road that he knows leads to nothing but destruction and death. But at the same time, John's desire is that they will not sin. <coughs> but John knows them as he knows themselves. And he knows that a sinlessness is not at all possible. So notice what he does. Because he knows there's going to come times where they are going to fail. So he's going to remind them three things about Christ. Here's part of the doctrine of Christ. And it begins at the end of verse 1 to verse 2. Because notice what he says. But if anyone does sin. So my first thing is don't sin. I know what it does. Don't abandon the gospel. Don't go and do things that are going to leave your life in destruction. But if anyone does. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So he lays out three huge doctrinal truths about Jesus here. One, he says that he's our advocate. He says he's the righteous one. He's our propitiation. So let me walk through these real quickly. Because he says that Jesus is, if you do sin, that he is our advocate. And this advocate is a word that means someone that comes alongside someone in a time of need. Or someone that speaks up in defense of someone else. And you see this. You turn on the TV to some court drama. And you see an advocate standing up and speaking for someone else. Or you know somebody that's a foster parent. Man, they're an advocate for that child. They're standing up and giving that child a voice. Or any time we use our time and resources to help those in need. That is being an advocate. So when we sin, John says, our only hope is that Christ is our advocate. He comes alongside in our time of need and he speaks up in our defense. And so let me show you quickly two examples of this. One of them's in Luke 22. And everyone knows about Peter's failure. I'm just lucky my name's not being written in Scripture for everybody to read for thousands of years. But everybody knows Peter. The one that said, I'll never deny you. And what does he do? Three times he denies Jesus. But what is often overlooked is what happens right as Jesus is telling him this is going to happen. And Peter says, no, no, no. That same very night, in Luke 22, verse 31 and 32, this is what it says. It says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But notice what Jesus says. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That Jesus comes alongside Peter, even though he knows what Peter is going to do. And he fights for Peter's faith before he fails. But there's another one in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. This is how it reads. It said, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ has come. But notice what's happening in the throne room. For the accuser of our brothers, 
has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So Satan here, he's called the accuser of Christians. And apparently Satan has access to the very throne of God. He accuses believers, it says, day and night before the throne. And here's what we need to know. Satan is throwing all these accusations of what these believers have done, and Satan is not wrong. He's got all the evidence he needs. But when those accusations, the truths about the sins of believers are shouted, Jesus is right there. The only one that can stand face to face with God the Father and speak on our behalf. And John says, I write in hopes that you may not sin. But if you do, Christ is your advocate. And then he says, Jesus Christ, the righteous, or it means the righteous one. So he's our advocate, but he's also our righteousness. It's sinful people. We lack the righteousness needed to even be in the presence of God. So John reminds his readers As sinful people, we lack that. But he reminds them that they'll never reach heaven on their own merit or their own goodness because it'll never be enough. But your hope is that Christ's perfect righteousness is given to the believer as if they were the ones that have done it. So he says, do not sin. But if you do, Jesus is your advocate. He is your righteousness. And then he says this word that we often don't hear, propitiation. And I want you to know, in the evangelical world, this word is really under attack. In fact, in the last five to ten years in my lifetime, it has been under attack more than any other time that I have known. Because this is the big question. Is what does he mean if he says Christ is our propitiation? And in some translations, yours might say a different word. But the truth is this, is that God has a righteous anger, a righteous wrath against all sin. Because listen to Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God, the righteous anger of God is revealed from heaven against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So if sinners like you and me and those sitting in these churches around Ephesus, if they're going to be forgiven, something has to be done about God's wrath. That God is love, yes. And God desires to forgive people of their sins. But we have to remember that God cannot just forgive sins. He cannot just sweep them under the rug or kind of turn a blind eye to all the unrighteousness because He is also just. And His wrath must be satisfied. So let me give you an example. Let's just say someone does something unmentionable to a child. Say it's your child. That person's arrested. They're found guilty. All the evidence is there. And at the trial, the person stands up, says they're sorry, pleads for forgiveness, and the judge sees this man and goes, man, my heart really breaks for him. Man, he's had a hard time growing up. He didn't have a good example. Uh, I, I, we just need to let this guy go free. 
there would be this outrage of, yes, forgiveness is possible, but justice must happen. What about the one that has been offended? And so God is love, yes, and he forgives. But he's also just, therefore, there must be a satisfying of his righteous wrath. And that is what the word propitiation means. It's the satisfying of God's wrath and the bringing of God's favor. When those two things come together, that is propitiation. So for our sins to be forgiven, someone who is without sin must pay the price for our sins. And John tells us that our only hope of escape from the just penalty of sins is for someone who is not himself under that penalty stands in as our advocate, as our substitute in our place. And John says, no one other than Jesus Christ can do that. So the reason God can't wave a wand and just forgive everyone and allow everyone to heaven is because sin is real. And God is holy. And His righteous anger stands against all sin. And justice must be served in such a way that sin is paid for. So John wants them to know, do not sin, my little children. But if you do, Christ is your advocate. He's the righteousness you need and He is your propitiation. He takes the wrath for you. And that takes us just through verse 2. And then there's this change of thought from John. John begins to think about something else and he begins to write it down. And what happens is anytime people are in leadership and you see them fall into sin in some way, what it always does, it always leaves a weight behind them. Whether you're a mother, a father, a teacher, a coast boss, or a church leader, anytime a leader falls into sin, it always leaves destruction in its path. The leaders, that these people, they trusted They looked up to them. They'd have them in their home and they would share meals together. And when they began abandoning the gospel, it left a wake of something in their path. It left this wake of doubt. People began wondering in their own minds about their own salvation. And this is something I think all believers tend to wrestle with from time to time, especially if you came to Christ as a young child, you grow up and you seem to have these doubts. But here's what is so fascinating. I thought about this just this morning. Anytime I've had somebody come in and we talk about, man, I'm having these doubts, what do we do? We want to just get them to remember. Well, do you remember where you were? Do you remember who was there? You know, how long have they been singing just as I am? You know, how many, how many verses have they done? And we're trying to get them, just, we just remember to hold on to something. But John doesn't do that. John does something that to me seems totally strange. When he's addressing the questions of doubt, you know what John goes to? He goes to obedience. But I think often we think about obedience or commands or rules, things like that. We see them in in such a negative light. We see things like commands and rules. They're They're just to keep us in line, make us do the right thing. They want to break our will and take away our fun and take away our freedom. 
that is not at all what God and John have in mind. So he's going to take four things that obedience does. So he's writing against this issue of doubts, and he uses obedience. Because look at verse 3. The first one is obedience is going to build assurance. Not remembering, but obedience. Because in verse 3 he says, And by this we know that we know. We know that we have known that we've come to know him. Notice what he says. Not if you can remember where you were. Not if you remember what was going on. Not if you remember what you said. Not if you remember you prayed this prayer. He said, if we keep his commandments. John says, do you want to know that you know? He says, keep the commandments. But what is John referring to? John is referring to Jesus' commands to the disciples to two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. That is what John is referring to when he says, do these things. And what it does, when we love God and we love others, you know what it will do? It will build an assurance in your life that you belong to Him. But you know why that is? It's because we will find ourselves doing things that we cannot and we would not do left to our own. When we find ourselves actually wanting to spend time with God, wanting to talk to Him, bringing our problems to Him and praising Him for the blessings in our life, leaning on Him for everything, loving what He loves, or when we're quick to forgive, when we go out of our way to help people, when we care about what people are going through, we're willing to put other things that we think are important aside to help them. Or we're willing to put our differences aside because we care about their eternity. These are the things we would never do if we did not belong to Him. And I think John believes two things about this right here. That knowing God and obeying God, those are two things that cannot be separated. They're two sides of the same coin. If we know God, we're going to obey God. And we obey God, we know God. But also, he wants to know salvation is not a matter of guesswork. That God actually wants us to have assurance and confidence that we belong to Him. So church, hear me on this. And I wrote this down just this morning. Obedience. Obedience is not a basis for our justification and our salvation. It is never based on works. It is only through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Not your performance. But obedience does build assurance in those who believe. But also persistent sin. You know what it will do? It will destroy assurance. So here's a thought to take with you today. That real assurance. You know what it will do? It's going to build a trust and a love for God that says this. No matter what is going on in my life, God is for me. Therefore, whatever God asks of me is the best thing for me. So obedience, John says it builds assurance, but it does something else. It also is a test of genuine faith because look at verse 4, almost the reverse. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So obedience, it builds assurance in the life of the believer, and it exposes 
false belief. But John is doing something here. He's addressing a certain type of knowledge. Because think about Judas. Judas, the one that betrayed Jesus, he knew Jesus. Lots of people know a lot of facts about him. But John uses the word know that is different than just knowing a bunch of facts and even being able to point out, oh, that's him. John is using a word that says there is a knowledge, there is a knowing that can only happen through experience. Think about anything that you might think of. Maybe skydiving or whitewater rafting. Raising children, driving a car. You can know a lot of facts. You can read a lot of books. You can talk to a lot of people that have done this. You can watch as many documentaries and films as you want. But there is this level of knowledge that only comes when you experience it. And that's what John is saying, that true knowledge, just like real assurance... Real knowledge, true knowledge, it will build a trust and a love for God that says, no matter what, God is for me. Therefore, whatever God asks of me is the best thing for me. And this kind of knowledge, what it does, it produces an obedience that is motivated by trust and love. But John's not done. There's a third thing that obedience does. It's in verse 5. But whosoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God, and notice what it says, is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. So the third thing about obedience is it creates this deeper, this this more mature love. That God's love for us runs deeper than we could ever imagine. And one day, believers, we get to finally experience that. God's love is seen in His forgiveness and His blessings and His correction. We see it in His Word. But John wants you to know even in God's commands. And what John is saying when he says that God's love is perfected, he means it's it's coming complete, it's becoming mature. That, That God's love for us and our love for God, God has this determined outcome that we're on this journey towards. And God's got this end in mind. And John says, when this happens, that God has a marked out goal for our love for Him and His love for us. And you know how you achieve that? It's through obedience. It means when we follow His command, our love for Him is, comes to this maturity that we could not know outside of obedience. And I want you to know this is something we all need more of. Because many times I think we fall into this mindset that goes something like this. Man, I've given my life to Christ. Man, I'm trying really hard at all these things. And maybe without even saying it, in our back of our minds we go, well, God doesn't God at least owe me something? And what we're thinking is, man, if He really loved me, things would go like I want them to go. I would have all that I want Maybe a lot of things that I need. I mean, life should be a little bit easier. Plenty of money, a job I love, no sickness, comfortable, enjoyable life. And I think in the back of our mind, we're thinking, I'm doing all these things. Why isn't he keeping up his end of the deal? 
But first, we need to be reminded. God didn't create us for our glory. God created us for His. And second of all, that's not mature love. Mature love will do this. It's going to build a trust. It's going to build a love for God that says, you know what, no matter what, no matter what in the world is going on in my life, God is for me. Therefore, whatever He asks of me, that is the best thing for me. And John says, that's a mature love. So obedience, it builds assurance. It it tests genuine faith. It creates a deeper love. But there's one more thing. Obedience shows who you love and follow. Because look at verse 6. And whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, speaking of Jesus, walked. And I believe John is remembering back to what he wrote in John 15. Where he paints this picture of Jesus being the vine and the believers being the branches. And he tells us that proof or evidence that we are connected to the vine is a life that is modeled after Jesus. So when others, whether it's our parents or children or neighbors or friends, when they see our lives, they can tell who we love and who we are following. And our obedience is not Just for us, John says. But it's also for those around us. Because what John does, he kind of wraps this up in the next five verses. And this is how it reads. Thinking of obedience, and your obedience shows who you love and who you follow. He says, Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment. But an old one that you heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And at the same time it is a new commandment that I am writing to you. Which is true in him and Jesus and in you. Because the darkness it's passing away in the true light. It is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and he hates his brother. They're still in darkness. But whoever Loves his brother, abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. They are watching. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and he walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So our lives, our obedience, it reflects who we love and who we're following. So the last one is this, that following Jesus, you know what it will do? It's going to build a trust and a love for God that says, no matter what, God is for me. Therefore, whatever God asks of me is the best thing for me. So this morning, I don't want to leave without saying this again. The commands John is talking about are not to be seen in this way that is supposed to be hindering or or stifling or take away our will, our freedom, or our fun. These commands are not to be seen as burdens. In fact, these commands are the very thing, you know what? It's going to give us assurance. It will create a deeper love, a more mature love. It will show others who you love and who you follow. So hear John say this this morning to you. My little children. I'm writing to you so that you may not sin for all the glorious 
benefits. But if you do, when you do, look to Christ, who is your advocate, your righteousness, and your propitiation. And John is saying, allow what Christ has done to now motivate us as believers in our obedience. You know what you'll see along the way? Real assurance, true knowledge, mature love, and following Jesus. That it will build a trust and a love for God that says, no matter what. No matter what is going on in my life, as bad as it hurts, as good as it could be, God is for me. There, whatever God is asking of me is the very best thing for me. You know what? I'm not for sure what God's going to be asking and calling you to do maybe over this next week. But I hope and pray that we would say, okay, God, no matter what, you are for me. Therefore, whatever you're asking of me, it is the very best thing for me. Church, let's pray. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.